turning our attention to Isaiah chapter 6. So turn there with me, please. A familiar passage, but I have to admit to you this morning, it's rather intimidating. (laughs) There's a sense in which we could spend an eternity looking at Isaiah chapter 6, and there's also a sense that there's just no way uh, that I can do any real justice to this passage, a truly grand passage of Scripture, the revelation of God. Yet, here we are, Isaiah 6, we are in Isaiah 5 last week with a lot of woes, uh, that's why we do expository preaching, nobody wakes up, no preacher wakes up and says, I think I'll preach on the six woes of God, nobody does that. Uh, But because we're going through Isaiah, we did that last week, and now we're in chapter 6. So I'll read to you the the scripture lesson, then we'll jump right in. Isaiah chapter 6, hear the word of God, the infallible, authoritative, inspired word from God. Isaiah, Bible's in the back if you don't have one, chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high, lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that had been taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to the people, Keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Verse 11. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until the cities lies waste without inhabitant, houses without people. The land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people from far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and through a tenth remain in it. It will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. This text of scripture, as the rest of the Bible, is not written in a vacuum. It has context. As we remember, if you remember John, uh, Isaiah chapter 1, the, chapter 1 is really a mini compilation of the entire book. Uh, Isaiah introduced himself rather quickly and then begins to speak for God. As God calls his people into account for living, for for really for their failure to live according to their promise, to to the God's covenant that he made with them. Obligation that God has laid out to them after, very important, the covenant came after their rescue, after their deliverance, after their salvation and redemption from Egypt. 
Then in chapter 1, verse 4, it tells us that they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. They tried religious rituals, but their heart was chasing after idols. And God says it's time to give account. He will judge his people. There's no way of escape. But then God declares in chapter 1, verse 27, that if they will just repent of their sins, he will redeem them. Chapter 1, verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. We said that chapter 2 through chapter 5 gives us more insight into what's going on in Judah, the southern kingdom, into the sin of God's people. Yet it begins and it ends, chapter 2 and chapter 5 through chapter 5, begins and ends with this glorious description of the grace of God in this messianic kingdom in this restored Jerusalem, that God will have a final word, the final word. But over and over, Isaiah teaches us in chapters 2 through 5 that God's people were prideful. He used the word haughty. That there needed to be humility. There needed to be brokenness in God's people. Psalm 34, 18, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Even Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We've already seen all kinds of indicators that God will uphold his holiness by dispensing the necessary punishment for sin. That man is in debt to God because of their sin and it must be satisfied. There must be payments. But we've seen over and over again God's grace, God's mercy. That he's not going to abandon his people utterly but promises to restore them by his grace. His unmerited love. And praise God that God is not only the just God, but the justifier. The one who makes his people right by forgiving them of their sins, by imputing the righteousness of another. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, with whom God put forward as a propitiation. By his blood, by the blood of Jesus to receive by faith. This was to show his righteousness that God might be the just and the justifier. It's a work of grace of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Sins forgiven, righteousness imputed, reconciled to God. You see, God's holiness is upheld and his grace is extended through the perfect life, the atoning death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week in chapter 5, we saw Isaiah sing a love song concerning the vineyard of the Lord and how God loved Israel, chose Israel by grace alone. But it quickly turns again to their spiritual failure. He announces six woes of lament. As God laments the death of his people and he gives two therefores, if you remember from last week, of the consequences, judgment that will come upon his people. We ended chapter 5 last week in verse 30 as they're being exiled. It says, and if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress and the light is darkened by its cloud. The people have been judged. God will bring exile and they will leave the land and be disciplined. In his love. This sets, this this context, again, chapter 1 through 5, sets up chapter 6. 
as we shall soon see, we shall soon see Isaiah, the prophet, to the people of Judah, the southern kingdom, the people he's preaching to, he finds himself in the same dilemma, a sinful, broken dilemma. So, so how does this corrupt and rebellious people, how does this corrupt and rebellious Isaiah become clean, become forgiven, be used of God to proclaim the good news to the nation. That is Judah's problem. That soon we will see is Isaiah's problem. The remedy that Isaiah will show us, not only for himself but for all the nation, is the radical act of God's grace. Isaiah in chapter 6 shows us the need for cleansing, spiritual renewal, and he does it by showing us his own experience as he Meets the king of kings. So we'll look at this chapter together. We'll look at three headings as we move through the chapter. The first one is the vision of God. Then the commission of Isaiah. And then what's mostly left out, and and if you know that this chapter, you always end the chapter, you know, eight, here I am, or chapter uh, chapter six, verse nine, here I am, send me. But we'll see how God steps in and we see the eviction of the people of God. So, Number one, the vision of God. Isaiah's vision, as we see in chapter 6, verse 1, happened in a very important time, a particular time in the life of Judah. The death of King Uzziah, somewhere around 739, 740 B.C., give or take a few years. It ends while while there's this military strength in Judah. If you remember, the world power is Assyria. They're rather weak at the moment, and King Uzziah comes into the the country, comes into Judah, the southern kingdom, and introduces this era of prosperity uh, and peace. He expands the border. But now the king is dead, and they're without a king. It's been said, if you're old enough to remember the the day that Kennedy was shot, the morning of a nation. There's a brokenness. There's, there's a, there's, it kind of takes the wind out of the nation. But let's not, for, let's not forget, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, during this time of prosperity, during this time of economic prosperity, military success, Uzziah, in the later part of his years, was under divine curse. Just as we've been witnessing chapters 2 through 4 of the haughtiness and pride of God's people, Isaiah himself became prideful. 2, Corinthians, 2 Chronicles first, uh, chapter 26 tells us that Uzziah, the king, during this time of, of prosperity, got very prideful. Look at all I've done. And become un, became unfaithful to the Lord. Actually walked into the temple of the Lord to offer incense on the altar of incense, something that he was not allowed to do. That was for the priest alone to do. And God struck him with leprosy. And now the rest of his reign, the years before his death, Uzziah was not allowed to have community. He was not allowed into the worshiping community. He was under divine displeasure because of his pride. Isaiah doesn't mention this, but how could they not feel it? What a contrast. This, this beloved king of Judah who brought just, just wonderful prosperity and, and success to the land 
was judged and disciplined, and yet Isaiah will enter into the throne room of God to see the king of kings. Not a king, but the king of kings. Verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple above him, not, not in authority, not in supremacy, but above him in servitude were the seraphims. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. Isaiah sees, the Hebrew word is to perceive, to become aware of. It's not that he was in this trance takeover. He was well uh, uh, conscious of what was going on, control of his uh, uh, faculties. And he sees the Lord. Now, we know from other places of Scripture that no one can see God. John, Jesus tells us that God is invisible spirit. He's a spirit. No, the Bible tells us that no one can see God in the full manifestation of his glory and live. No one. So we're talking about a certain level of glory that God allowed here to Isaiah. Dr. Gary Smith in New American Commentary writes this. This was a limited manifestation that was adapted to finite mental comprehension and human observation, end quote. Some suggest that Isaiah was actually in the temple in Jerusalem when this took place. The, the place where God would meet his people. The place where, where, on earth where, where earth and heaven intersected. And Isaiah saw in the, in the inner eye and able to, to see, the, see the, the earthly symbols and yet look to the, to the, to the heavenlies. There's a copy of what was in heaven and see and this barrier is removed and he is brought into the presence of God. Calvin says there was therefore exhibited to Isaiah such a form as enabled him according to his capacity to perceive the inconceivable majesty of God and thus he attributes to God a throne, a robe and a bodily appearance, end quote. This experience, this vision, this glimpse into the majesty of God's glory dramatically impacted Isaiah. Dramatically impacted his theology, his understanding of who God is, and it changed him. Came to understand God's purpose and worship in a much greater way. He sees the Lord seated High, lifted up, in authority. A place of authority, a place of sovereignty. God is both king and judge on his throne. He is ready, he is able to exercise his kingly privilege of pronouncing judgment upon the world. The time of reckoning has come. The train of his robe filled the temple. The robe uh, indicates majesty and splendor filling the temple. The Bible says that the whole earth even the, the highest heavens cannot contain this exalted, incomparable king. Family, I want you to see this, this sense, uh, this glorious, majestic scene in all God's splendor and glory and beauty. The throne room is active, Scripture tells us. Angelic beings called seraphim, 
literally means burning ones. The Hebrew word uh, was used for poisonous snakes in the wilderness, also used in other places for figuratively of threatening dangerous snakes. These angels are not what you see. You just Google angels and you got these beautiful ladies or these, these, these adorable chubby little babies. That's not them. No, they were like fiery lizards with wings, living flames, powered praise, sinless creatures humbled before God, worshiping. It was A.W. Tozer said, we must not think of God, we must not think of God as highest in an ascending order of being, starting with a single cell, going up to a fish, then a bird, then an animal, then to man, then to angels, then to cherubim, no. God is as high above an archangel as above a caterpillar. For the gulf that separates the archangel from the caterpillar is finite. But the gulf between God and the archangels is infinite. End quote. The seraphims hover, constant motion, ready to do the will of God. Isaiah doesn't tell us how many seraphims are there. And that's okay. Because John does. The Apostle John is taken up into the heavens in Revelation chapter 5, and it says that there were many voices, or voices of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads of thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, millions upon millions upon millions, covering their face with two wings. Avoid looking, being overwhelmed into the presence of God. Probably not that they could not look. They are created beings. But more likely with humility and reverence and awe, they cover their face. They cover their feet. You're the majestic king. You're the holy one of Israel. You're the king of glory. They cover their feet in a sense of saying, we do what you want us to do. Feet were uh, 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 mort your rights. Feet were, uh, were the organs of activity. Perhaps they cover their feet to, to, to disavow choosing their own path. In other words, they cover their eyes in reverence and worship. They cover their feet saying, we, uh, we are here to do your will alone. Verse 3, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That repetition, only place it speaks about it in Scripture is the holiness of God. It's to press, in, to press home the, the superlative, the unmatched, the unparalleled holiness of God. The seraphims are declaring the, the totality of, this, uh, of the divine perfection of God that is complete. Completely and totally and absolutely the holiest of all holy. Holiness is the essence of God's nature. God himself is the supreme revelation of his holiness. The word comes from separate. God's absolutely holiness reveals to us how just how separate and different and totally other than he is than anything in all creation. He is separate from creation. He is separate from that which is common. And he is separate from everything that is sinfully and, uh, sinful and dark in this profane world. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Mortier again says, His holiness is therefore his unapproachable and unique moral majesty before which sinful humankind instinctively quakes, end quote. And when this 
otherness, this, this, this holiness, this purity, holy, holy, holy Lord, goes public, it says the whole earth is full of your glory. God's glory, the outward manifestation of the brightness of his majesty and holiness. God's glory, literally Hebrew, weightiness. God's glory is, listen, his intrinsic greatness, his infinite importance, his supreme preeminence, his immeasurable value, weightiness, incalculable worth that he has in himself above all things. God's glory fills the earth as his, the revelation, as he unveils himself of his attributes, fill the earth. God's glory fills the earth as the revelation of God's attributes fills the earth. Verse 4. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him, most likely the angels as they shout out. And the house was filled with smoke, the very presence of God. And Isaiah sees the holy and glorious Lord. And what happens then? He feels deeply to the core of his being his own sinfulness. And he cries out a, a word that's very similar to the, the word that was used in chapter 5, the six woes. He says, woe is me. First it was woe is them. Now it's woe is me. Because a true vision of the holiness of God always results, always will result in the conviction of sin for us sinners. So if we have a lack of recognizing sin in our lives and we are living without really understanding our brokenness, our sinfulness, our, our, our hearts that are, are prone to sin, we are probably living without a truly understanding the holiness of God. Isaiah is rightly afraid. <laughs> God's going to wipe away with him in the, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the throne room of God. He feels the corruption of his tongue, the very instrument he will use in his prophetic ministry. He feels the corruption of not only his own tongue, but the people. Verse 5, woe is me. I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king. Not a king. He's dead. The king. The Lord of hosts. Notice what Isaiah doesn't do. Right? He does not join the heavenly choir. Hey, can I sing with you guys? Why? Because Isaiah immediately feels aware of his own unfitness. To stand before God, to sing before God, to serve the Lord. He's in need of atonement. I am lost, he says, ESV. New American Standard, NIV, ruined. New King James, undone. Literally means I, I've been made to, to, be, to cease. I've been cut off. I'm undone. I'm doomed. It was R.C. Sproul, great book, Holiness of God. If you never read it, read it. R.C. Sproul was right when he speaks of this encounter Isaiah has with God as reflecting the normal trauma that occurs when a person meets the living God. Shocks our system. Traumatizes us with his holiness. Isaiah feared that he would be consumed in the presence 
of the holy, glorious God. Not only is Isaiah unfit to praise, to approach, or to serve this God, the same is true with the nation in whom he dwells, and whom he represents to some degree. Because of its sinfulness, the entire nation is unfit to praise, to approach, or to serve God. The seraphims had praised God with pure lips. They were sinless creatures. But this Isaiah could not do. My eyes have seen. I can't do this. And make no mistake, when it says my lips are unclean, what he's talking about is the heart, right? Didn't Jesus say that? What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and that defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, and slander. Verse 5 ends. Family, there is no hope for Isaiah. Chapter 6, verse 5 ends. There is no hope for the people of God. The impact of this vision completely disintegrates him as it would if any of us saw the Lord of glory, the Holy One of Israel. But it doesn't end in verse 5. Now some people we see the commission, some people like to, to see the commission of Isaiah starting in verse 8, and there's a sense in which all of chapter 6 is about his commission, his calling. But I, what I want to do is I want to look at verse 6, a part of the pre-call of Isaiah as part of his commission this morning. Something needs to be done before God is going to use Isaiah on mission, right? The first step was that, that God called him into his presence. There was a confession of sin. He embraced the reality of the glory and the holiness of God who rules the heavens and the earth. And then there's this transforming power of God's life-changing grace in Isaiah's life. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that I had taken with tongs from the altar, and he, and he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. I mean, c- can you just see this? Th- this angel, lizard-like, six-wings angel swooping down, grabbing a coal from the altar, the place of sacrifice, the, the place of bloody death and substitute atonement and grabs a coal with his tongs and he brings it to Isaiah's lips who's probably standing there like frozen with his mouth open anyway in awe what does Isaiah do to deserve to earn forgiveness Nothing. Did he offer, Lord, I will sacrifice to you? No. Did he promise, I will never speak a bad word with these lips ever again? No. Did he say, Lord, send me wherever you want to go. Just forgive me. No. This is purely an act of God's grace. Isaiah did nothing to accomplish his atonement. The just punishment that he deserved for his sin will not be extracted from himself. And because his guilt has been taken away by God, Isaiah is no longer kept from the presence of God. His sins are atoned, Kippur. We get Yom Kippur, a covering. Meaning that God's wrath and the sin that brought it about was satisfied. His wrath turned aside, taken away, making renewal 
with a holy God and a sinful people possible. Sin, he, Isaiah will write in 59, chapter 59, verse 2, sin no longer separated God from Isaiah. God forgave Isaiah, and the touching of his lips from the coal, from the altar, was symbolic that a, a, a propitiatory sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice, was necessary for him to be forgiven of his sin. It was an act of grace. God alone is the author of forgiveness. And the seraphims are simply the messengers of God. So you see, God calls Isaiah to his presence. He cleanses Isaiah, and then he sends Isaiah. Verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. When Abram, who later became Abraham, came into the presence of God, God came to him and said, look, come out of the country and I want you to go. I want you to go to a place that I will send you. And when you get there, I'll make a covenant with you, right? That's what happened. And I will bless you. Kings will come from you. The Lord will come for you and he will bless many. God came to Moses in the burning bush. What did he say? Come here, Moses. Now I want you to go. Go to Pharaoh. Go to my people. Bring redemption and deliverance to my people. God brings Isaiah to his throne room where he's exposed to God's holiness. He's crushed because of his sin. He's then forgiven and cleansed by God. And now God sends him on mission. Go. God always calls us in to send us out. And I don't want to take anything away from, in fact, I want to honor those who have been sent overseas, who have been sent to foreign lands, who have, been, who have given up family and friends, relationships, everything they know to go and serve God in foreign lands. They have made a great sacrifice. But unfortunately, too often we here back in the States see them as the real spiritual ones and we sit back and we don't recognize that God has called every one of his children in Cleanse them and then sends them out is the very nature of God to live on mission. God is living on mission. God is on mission to restore and to renew and to reconcile, to redeem mankind back to himself. And as the people in Christ, the church, we are participators in the purposes of God. The missio dei is the Latin for the mission of God. Is the, the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit, sending his people out on mission as the father sent me jesus said even so i am sending you and the primary focus of a believer is the common mission of taking the gospel of redemption to our world which includes overseas but also includes our friends our families our communities our co-workers our fellow students People we come in contact with. We are to be the hands and the feet of God as we demonstrate the gospel by loving them and caring for them and then declaring the gospel with words of repentance and faith. Family, that's our mission. Is that your mission? Is that my mission? Am I at the places I'm at, whether it's work, whether it's home, whether it's community, whether it's on a baseball field, a soccer field, is my mission, am I there for the missio day, the mission of God? If God has called you in and cleansed you of your sin and sent you out, that's your mission and that's my mission. It's a mission that God began in Genesis 3.15, then with Abraham, then with Moses, then with the nation of Israel, then with Matthew 28. 
as he gives the command to the church. First, Isaiah sees this holy God and, and, and awareness of a sin. Then he's atoned. His sins are atoned for. And he hears the call of God to go. And he says, look what he says. Here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. And Isaiah 6 stands as, a, as an enduring example of all those who are on mission with God. It's only when we've been convicted of our sin, we recognize our sin, God is holy and we are sinful, and we understand that the Redeemer himself, God himself, bores our guilt and our sins. It is then that we are willing and joyfully will go and live on mission and go wherever God will call us. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been wrestling with, you know, God's calling me to a certain place. God is calling all of us where we are at the moment. But maybe God is calling you to go overseas with a particular place of service. Maybe, maybe to Budapest to serve with refugees, a medical clinic, serve in Asia. Or maybe a family in Africa. These are all our global partners sharing the gospel through a farm and other indigenous work and activity. It's not should I or if I, it's, it's are we living on mission? The answer should be yes. Where do you want me to go, Lord? I'm here now. I will actively serve and on mission with you here. But is there another place you want me to go? Verses 9 and 10 gives us the command. God gives the command to Isaiah in verses 9 and 10 to go, right? But unfortunately for him, no one's going to listen. God says, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. Blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. I want you to go and I want you to preach my will, my word, not one heart. Hearts are not going to be convicted. It's not going to bring any humility and confession of sin. Actually, Isaiah, it's actually going to cause more hardening of the people. Right? At that point, he's like, can I, can I, can I trade places with Jonah? <laughs> Jonah went to the Ninevites who hated Israel. The whole town got saved. The problem is not with the message. The message will simply confirm their hardened unwillingness to respond positively to God and his word and to his prophet. Isaiah is called to preach a message that, given the already hardened hearts of his generation, will only push them further and further away from God. Their hearts will be dull, calloused really is the word, ears heavy, eyes closed to the truth. Notice Isaiah in his wonderful, the way he writes, of course inspired of God, the heart, the ears, and the eyes, emphasizing the totality of the being. Sort of like when in Exodus, God hardens the heart of Pharaoh. And we know that this king, Pharaoh, in Egypt had already hardened his heart. Some years later, we read in Shechem and Judges, God sends an evil spirit on sinful people. And on, we read in First and Second Samuel, we studied that together, uh, evil spirit on the disobedient king of Israel, Saul. And here we see Isaiah's mission to preach we met with hardening of hearts. Not something that's foreign to Scripture. Unfortunately, too many people 
unwilling to hear. And these passages demonstrate that, that the idea of both God closing people's ears and the concept that people themselves close their own ears is not really foreign to Scripture, not foreign to the theology of Isaiah. We'll see it later on. Not even foreign to, the, to Jesus, who in Mark chapter 4 said this, Jesus talking, to you, his disciples, have been given the secrets of the kingdom of God, but those outside, everything is in parables. And then... Jesus quotes Isaiah. So that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. He quotes Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. One thing we know for sure, family, what's not happening here. Well, we can know with certainty that people are not like, well, I'm really open, I'm really willing to respond in faith and to respond in repentance when, God, when, when the word of God is being preached and, and, and declared and then God comes along and says, no, no, to hell with you. I'm going to make you a soft heart of faith, your desire to repent, and I'm going to make it hard and rebellious. That's not what's happening here. Scripture is clear about our hearts without the grace of God. Very clear. Genesis 6. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who could understand it? Ephesians 2. We're dead in our sins. Trespasses in our sins. We walk following the course of this world, the prince the evil one, the power of the air. We live in passions of our flesh, desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, wrath like the rest of mankind. God doesn't come along. Let me, let me, let me quote this. Calvin gets it right. Such blinding and hardening Such blinding and hardening influence does not arise out of the nature of the word, but must be ascribed to the depravity of man. The whole blame lies not on themselves and altogether refusal its admission, and we need not wonder if that which ought to have led them to salvation becomes the cause of their destruction. End quote. God's judicial hardening, now listen carefully, is not the capricious, this, this fickle manipulation of a, just an, an arbitrary sovereign God who sees morally neutral and good people, but rather those who have been hardened by sin and chose the path of disobedience. Very clear in Scripture. It is very appropriate to take the Lord's command to cause the people to listen, but not to perceive as an authentic part of God's plan in Isaiah's ministry. But Isaiah's mission, like our mission, is not fruitfulness, it's faithfulness. It's faithfulness. We are called family. We are called to proclaim the good news of the gospel to every living creature. Hard-hearted or not, to love and to show mercy and grace to everyone. We leave the fruitfulness to God and we are to be faithful on the mission. Proclaiming the good news, leaving the eyes and the ears and the hearts of men to God. 
Isaiah will be faithful to go. That's our principle we take away from this. The vision of God, the commission of, uh, of Isaiah and the eviction of God's people. So Isaiah is like, all right, I'll go. I'll go, I'll declare your word, I'll declare your will, and yes, I'll, I'll be faithful. I'm not going to worry about fruitfulness because there will be none. And I'll go. But can I ask just one question, dear Lord? How long do you want me to do this? Fair question. I don't think he's trying to get out of it. He, he's, he's painfully curious and woefully troubled by the hardness of heart. Uh, a couple of days, a week, maybe a month. How long, Lord? God answers. I don't think it's the answer he was looking for myself. Until cities lies waste without inhabitants and houses without people and the land is desolate waste, verse 12. And the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. God's answer, listen, I'll tell you how long. (laughs) Until no one's left in the city. No one's in Judah. No one's in Jerusalem. uh, No one's in the city of God, the city of peace. I know it's very populous now. Everyone's busy doing their things. Everyone's uh, uh, really got no time for the Lord. But soon it'll be utterly desolate. Houses will have no inhabitants. The cultivated land that is fruitful will become a desolate land. War is coming and it will ravage Judah. The Lord who chose Israel by grace and gave her the land of promise will now remove her from the land. The people will receive from God the penalty due their sin. He will remove her far away to a great distance into exile. They will be evicted from the land of promise. And it will be done by another nation. Gentile unbelieving nation would be the administering discipline of God on his people. As we already said, Assyria is the world power at, at this moment. But soon enough they will learn that Babylon will be the one great agent of God for their destruction. But Isaiah concludes this chapter with an assurance of the finality of God's grace. I don't want to miss that. Verse 13. Although a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. It will be a tenth burned again like a terebinth, which is a tree, or an oak whose stump remains when it felled. So burned Fallen tree, stump remains. And then he says, the holy seed is its stump. God will judge his people, but not utterly and finally. Isaiah seems to predict that this remnant will pass through a fire, further chastisement, and that the, the burning will take place. But look what it says. There will be a, 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 a preservation of a holy remnant. This holy seed comes from a stump representing life that's still there. In this tree, there's a sprout that will come out. God will provide a living remnant of people who are responsive to him. Now, commentators are mixed about the holy seed. It's a stump. Some commentators say, you know what? It it is simply a remnant of God's. It's the people of God, a remnant that belongs to the Lord. And some other people say, yeah, that's true. But in Isaiah's words, in in this one phrase... We're picking up this ancient promise that's throughout all of Scripture of the promised seed. Genesis 3.15. The seed that will come and will be bruised, the seed of man, but will ultimately crush the head of Satan. The seed we know is Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. 
who will destroy sin, destroy Satan, and destroy death. And according to the covenant with Abraham, he will bless the whole world through his atoning sacrifice. In fact, Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 9, it says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. You've got this branch coming out bearing fruit. And the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seed. A clear reference to Christ. Now as we conclude, a few more minutes, let me, can we please go back to verse 8? I want to show you something. After Isaiah's vision of God's holiness and glory, he's called into his presence. Isaiah admits, admits he's completely undone. His, his sin is removed. The, the, the atonement made. The Lord says this. Whom shall I send and who will go for what? Us. Hmm. God speaks the singular. Who shall I send? And then he changes to the plural, us. He doesn't say, whom shall I send and who will go for me? Who's he talking about? Who is this us he is sending? The angels? I don't think so. They're not participation. They don't participate in the mission and the salvation of God. The work of calling in, listen, the work of cleaning, cleansing, and atoning of sin and guilt, and the work of sending out mission belongs to the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. You know how I know that? In John chapter 12, in John chapter 12, some Greeks come to Jesus. It's the week of, uh, actually next week, um, before he was crucified. Triumphal entry. And they come to Jesus, these Greeks come to Jesus, uh, uh, excuse me, the Greeks come to Andrew and to Philip, and they say, Can you, we want to see Jesus. And they go to Jesus and they say, look, there's some people here, they want to see you. Jesus responds, this is the last week of his life, and he says this, the hour has come that the Son of Man is to be glorified. Catch that word. That unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it'll bear fruit. Is death, life. He goes, now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come into the world. So Father, glorify your name. A voice comes from heaven. I've glorified it and I will glorify it again. Jesus says, and when I am lifted up in the earth, when I'm crucified on a Roman cross, I'll draw everyone up, I'll draw all people to myself. And then in John chapter 12, verse 37, it says this, very interesting, and I'll wrap it up in a minute. Though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe. Jesus did many signs. He spoke about the glory of God. He spoke about his crucifixion. He spoke about all the things that were taking place. The hour had come for his death and resurrection, and they still did not believe. John goes on to say, For Isaiah said, John chapter 12, verse 40, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn and I will heal them. A direct quote from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. 
Why, John? Why, why would Jesus take something, or why would John mention something that Isaiah said back in chapter 6, while he's in the presence of the holy, holy, holy God, who, who said the whole earth is full of his glory? Why? Jesus, listen, John tells us why. Look at the next verse, verse 41. Isaiah said these things, Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10, because he what? He saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. The great holy God of glory that Isaiah saw, who was seated on a throne, high and lifted up, seraphim flying, can't even look upon the beauty and glory and majesty of God, veiling their faces, is who? Jesus. The one whose blood provides the only way our sins can be forgiven. The purity of our, uh, the, the cleansing work. The, the coal that was taken from the altar points to Christ purifying, atoning work of salvation and the removal on, of our guilt. Isaiah said these things because he saw the vision of his glory. So now listen carefully. Where on earth was the greatest display of the holy and glorious God? Where on earth is the greatest manifestation of the brightness of God's majesty and holiness? Where on this earth did we see the intrinsic greatness, infinite importance, supreme preeminence, immeasurable value, and incalculable worth of God? Was it not on the cross? How does God's glory fill the earth as he reveals his attributes? Was it not at the cross? Where the just wrath of a just and holy God was poured out and satisfied. It was on the cross where the infinite love of God and the incalculable worth of God is on display. The holy God who is alone infinitely glorious has been revealed through the person and the work of Christ. The work of Christ in our salvation. That is what Isaiah saw and Isaiah experienced. But that is unfortunately what others refuse to see and experience. And I hope you're here this morning not refusing with a hardened heart. Today, if you hear my voice, today is a day of salvation. I hope that's not you this morning. And in light of the glory of God, in light of the work of Jesus, in light of the attributes of God expressed at the cross, he is just and the justifier. Listen to this last verse, and then we'll call the band up. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. In their case, the God of this world, small g, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, the hard-hearted people who refuse to repent and refuse to put their faith in Christ. The God of this world has blinded the minds to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For God said, let light shine out of darkness. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The glory of God that fills the whole earth is Christ. His perfect life. His Atoning sacrifice, 
His willingness to forgive those who turn and repent of their sins. His glorious resurrection from the grave pointing to that God's holiness has been satisfied. Payment has been received and accepted. Only his atonement will there and can there ever be forgiveness of our sins and a removal of guilt. Family, do you want to glorify God? Then hear Jesus calling you, who shall I send? Who will go for us to the ends of the earth to proclaim the gospel? Who will go for the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the Father who sends the Son, the Son who dies on the cross, and the Spirit who opens the heart to receive the gospel? Will you this morning answer by faith with full consecration? Here I am, Lord, send me. As we demonstrate and declare the gospel, we're not only proclaiming salvation, the salvation of our God, but we are, listen, proclaiming the glory of our God. The mission to take up demonstrating and declaring the gospel is about salvation, but ultimately, it's about the glory of God. When one sinner turns and repents and turns for forgiveness, to Christ. Let us pray. Father, each and every one of us, if we are honest, we enter, if, if, if we even get a glimpse of your holiness, we are undone. Isaiah is no different than us. Lord, we want to see your glory. We want to see your holiness. We want to see our, 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 our undoneness, but we also embrace the mercy, the grace, the kindness, the goodness of, uh, uh, of Christ taking our sin upon himself, absorbing the wrath we deserve upon himself, dying in our place, rising from the dead, and then offering grace and mercy to all of us to come, to turn from being our own Savior and turning to Christ as the only Savior and Father, we pray together that we would embrace that truth, but also, Lord, we would say, here I am. Here am I, send me. Help us this week. Help us this week to understand how holy you are and how gracious you are. And help us to open our mouths, especially with the Easter season coming, looking for ways to bridge relationships and to, to communicate the truth of your love and your grace and your mercy and your holiness. And Lord, we pray that we would be a people that are all about your glory in the gospel, we pray. In Jesus' good name, amen.